This week, we'll be discussing the NATO summit in Brussels, the expanding US trade war and its effects in Europe, as well as finally big news in UK's Brexit proceedings as two government front benches resign over the negotiations. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 13th of July. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. Now onto the NATO summit in Brussels. This is particularly important to obviously Europe and the US, but also to Russia as the NATO agreement, so the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which basically binds US, Canada, and basically Europe uh, for the most part, together in a collective defense agreement where if any one of them atta- is attacked, they can invoke Article 5 of the agreement and everyone else must come to their defense. So it's a collective defensive alliance built during the Cold War to hold back the Soviet Union. However, obviously with the Soviet Union collapsing the, and Russia being relatively weak in terms of its demographics and its economy compared to back during the height of the Cold War, the reason for NATO's existence has somewhat lacked in recent years. And additionally, it's been under pressure, rhetorical pressure from President Trump. And this started back during his candidacy candidacy to be president during primaries in the U.S., where he thought he was quite saying quite openly in a kind of populist fashion that, you know, they're paying to defend Europe. Why are we doing this? Bring our troops home, this, this kind of thing. So this summit is a bit of a litmus test to what's going to happen in the future. If, if the U.S. leaves NATO, it is in big, big trouble, because if the U.S. leaves NATO, the other, most of the other countries, including NATO, will then have no security guarantor in the form of the United States, which is a distant great power. And if they're no longer relying on that distant great power to kind of keep them all together and in check and know that if one of them attacks the other, the U.S. will come in and, and stop them, they'll suddenly be in a group of nations who are all adjacent to each other and who are also potential threats to each other with no U.S. to step in to stop one attack and the other. So if NATO loses the U.S., it loses a lot of its staying power, not only in the effect of its military, as the U.S. spends the vast majority um, on its military out of any of the other nations in gold uh, and provides most of the defense of NATO if something went wrong. It also means that the remaining nations would have to increase their military uh, to make up for this deficit of the U.S. leaving. And that would then lead to the security dilemma we've talked about. I think it was the original podcast, which is you start building an army, you get you get a tank, you see your neighbor's got some extra tanks. You want to buy an extra tank to make sure you're safe from them. But then they see you buy an extra tank and then, well, they're not so happy about that. So And then you escalate. And so tensions build and alliances break down. And so if the U.S. leaves, NATO is in serious trouble. So coming out of this summit, Trump made statements alluding to the idea that the other NATO members had agreed to meet their 2% of GDP by 2024 commitments uh, earlier than expected, and that even higher commitments would be agreed to in the future. And so what this 2% of GDP by 2024 was, was an agreement by nations that they would raise the spending on their military to 2% of their total economy by 2024, because most of them were under 2%, many of them, you know, 1% or even less, um, basically taking a peace dividend and that they're not spending on the military, they're able to focus more on their economy and enrich their citizens while other nations are basically footing the bill for defending them. And that's the main issue that Trump in particular has with the alliance. However, after this statement's making it seem like NATO had come onto Trump's side on this particular issue and that he was kind of taking credit for bringing them to the U.S.'s position on this particular issue, which is before Trump. You know, this has been a thing that 
many U.S. presidents have asked of NATO in the past is that please increase your commitments, please increase your commitments. However, Trump is the first one to really take a, a, a hardball approach uh, or at least a very strong rhetorical approach when it comes to these uh, issues. However, after Trump's statements, French President Emmanuel Macron said that no one had agreed to any figure higher than what the leaders communique of 2% by 2024 um, had stated. And so basically repudiating Trump's implicit allusion to some greater gains he made during negotiations, which doesn't bode well for the alliance. Furthermore, there's been a particular sticking point between Trump and Germany over something called the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is basically a pipeline that moves Russian uh, energy resources from Russia around countries in the east like Poland and Ukraine and the like and directly basically into Germany. This pipeline is planned to be completed in the near future and would give Germany access to Russian resources that wouldn't have to flow through these other countries and thus those countries couldn't shut off the pipes if Russia was imposing some uh, effect upon them and they wanted the support of Germany and they were going to turn off the pipes unless Germany backed them against Russia. In addition, Russia has been accused of turning off the flow of resources to countries and Europe in the past for political gain. And so by having this pipeline, um, Russia could turn off and put the pressure on some Eastern uh, European countries without affecting Germany, um, which is obviously to Germany's benefit as it doesn't want to be uh, hit by a secondary effect. But it does undermine European solidarity somewhat. And so what Trump's problem with this pipeline is, is that Germany is being defended by the US and the US is spending all this money in part to defend NATO, but also in part to service its own interests. And at the same time, the US is defending Europe from potential Russian aggression. The Germans are throwing money at the Russians and buying this pipeline and becoming closer to the Russians and allowing the Russians potentially to have more leverage over them, over kind of selectively turning off the pipes as well, particularly to them and rather than anyone else. So from Trump's perspective, why, you know, why would the U.S. be supporting and defending a country that is working with the people that's supposedly trying to defend against? Uh, to which the Germans would say, well, it's a matter of economics. If we try and get her oil or gas from other areas, it's more costly. You have to ship them in. It takes longer. It's further away. This makes good economic sense to do this. Which, of course, the Americans can turn around and say, well, it makes good economic sense for us to pull out of NATO and let you defend yourselves. And then all that money you save on this particular economic venture, you can spend in defending yourselves. And so there's a bit of a, a hardball play here between the two and a weakening of the norms uh, that undermine NATO, that there is a solidarity between nations to defend each other, and that the US seems rhetorically, at the very least, pulling back from this. However, it doesn't appear that Trump has you know, destroy NATO at this summit or you know, pull itself out. He's appeared to have agreed to the kind of accepted terms. We'll get more details coming in the future, but it appears like he hasn't undermined NATO as much as previously worried about, particularly in Europe. However, Trump is also slated to meet with President Putin in the near future. And we'll be coming back with news from that particular meeting in the future. But how that meeting goes will also reflect on this NATO meeting and others, because if he becomes particularly close with the Russians, um, that will mean NATO would be an even more pressure to effectively fall by the wayside, either over time, instead of one single action or destroying it, things like Turkey becoming more authoritarian um, and the US rhetoric against NATO 
and the attempts by Germany to be friends with Russia in terms of energy resources, while at the same time engaging in sanctions against Russia, means that NATO is going to come under more and more pressure and it may start eroding at the edges more and more. But we'll bring you any updates that come through as they do. Now, related to NATO and particularly Europe is the US trade war escalation. The US has gone through with its tariffs of 25% on steel and 10% on aluminium to Canada, Mexico, and Europe. Uh, in addition, it has also been escalating with China by tariffing more and more of Chinese goods. And there's been some retaliatory strikes, but not to the same degree, as China doesn't have as many goods to tariff against the US. Now, from an economist's point of view, these tariffs don't make much of a difference, as the EU's exports to the US in terms of steel and aluminium, not that important for the, the grand scheme of things. Certain national economies may have more of their uh, exports to the US made up by the steel um, exports, but there's so much trade within the EU that trading to the US makes a relatively small part of some of these smaller economies as they're just trading amongst other European countries. And even then, steel might not make, it may make 10% out of the total proportion of 2.5%, say, that, the, that they're trading you know, with the US as opposed to other countries. So it might be, in the grand scheme of things, a very, very small portion of their economy. However, tariffs have a knock-on effect because as the US has set up these global tariffs, they become less attractive to sell to. And so countries that were going to sell to the US, and it could be, for instance, South Korea or Australia, who've both taken quotas out where they'll send less to the US, but they might have spare production. So where is the spare production they're going to go? Well, they'll look for other countries to sell it to. They might make slightly less than they would with, with the Americans before the tariffs, but it's still better than nothing, and it might still make a profit. And so they'll look around for a potential market, and the EU is a large market. And so you might see a flood of steel and aluminium from, say, China into the EU. And that has impacts on their domestic market because suddenly there is a flood of steel into the market. Domestic producers can't compete with the flood, particularly with uh, China, as China has subsidized its steel production to keep jobs uh, in the economy so that people won't rise up against the government. And so this, it's not about economics, it's about politics and security of the nation state uh, and preventing any uprisings. So as the domestic economy is flooded with these uh, this excess steel that can't be sent to the US anymore, it may destroy the steel industry in Europe, which in the short term is not that big of a deal in terms of everyone else in the supply chain is probably quite happy as they now get steel for cheaper and they can sell their products uh, for less and become more competitive or their costs have gone down so their profit margins go up. But if you destroy the domestic industry and then later on tariffs ease or deals are worked out or production in China, for instance, or other countries goes down and suddenly steel becomes more expensive again, then you have to try and rebuild that industry up again. And that takes time and it's inefficient because it's much better to get a process going and just keep it ticking over rather than trying to rebuild it from scratch. And so in response to this, in early July, the EU voted in favor of provisional measures to curb steel imports. Thus, the EU, which is seen as this bastion of free trade, uh, has become more protectionist against countries that are not the US due to the US tariffs because they, they are going to be flooded by uh, other nations who are impacted by the US tariffs. This is going to force them to become more protectionist to defend their local markets. And thus, they are then propagating this kind of protectionist anti-free trade approach that the US has started to other nations who didn't necessarily have any problem with the EU, but they then get retaliated against. 
This is a really important example showing how the effect of protectionism from the US can have wide ranging effects beyond its shores and that countries that otherwise would be getting along and enjoying free trade as a side effect of their tariffs, which are being opposed by the US, then create protectionist measures between those independent countries that otherwise had good relations. And so what the most likely thing to occur will be there'll be some kind of quota or import quota set where uh, at a certain point, there's no more steel is allowed in the EU to protect the local industries. In response to these US tariffs, the EU has imposed 2.8 billion euros worth of tariffs on the US, uh, and it has also launched a legal challenge at the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization, from its own perspective, is a organization dedicated to expanding free trade and negotiating any differences or dealing with any kind of court actions between countries that feel like they're being hard done by. The World Trade Organization has expanded over time to include many countries and was seen as part of, in the past, the US attempts to expand kind of liberal democracy and free trade and kind of the Washington consensus, this idea that small government, deregulation, and free trade is like the way to build your economy. However, over the last two years, this trade war that's been brewing at the same time the U.S. has been blocking new judge appointments to the World Trade Organization's appellate body, which is there to basically resolve disputes between countries and would be dealing with these kind of court cases. And so the U.S. has been preventing replacements to vacancies in this seven-member appellate body. And so effectively, on the one hand, the U.S. is imposing tariffs, and at the same time, it's been undermining the international system uh, determined to deal with people who establish tariffs and trade wars and protectionist measures that the U.S. is engaging in. So on the one hand, it's increasing its protectionism. On the other hand, it's preventing others from being able to bring it to court proceedings under through the WTO and undermining the norm of international institutions being at the heart of how the international system should work. And so the EU putting out protectionist measures against countries that are not the U.S. to protect their domestic steel market is also basically undermining the WTO as well, because at the same time as they're launching this action against the US, they're using protectionist measures to defend themselves, not only against the US, but other nations who haven't uh, tariffed them originally. So if you remember back to a year or maybe two years ago when this idea of a trade war came up and people thought it was insane and no one would ever do it, uh, it would destroy the world economy, there's no way Trump would follow through and actually start imposing large-scale tariffs, here we are. One to two years later, he's actually seen to be following through with his rhetoric, which is something many people accuse him of not of doing, such as in case of the NATO summit, uh, saying all these things against NATO, but still, again, signing the document and, and basically keeping NATO alive. So out of all the foreign policy decisions Trump's made, he seems most committed to the trade war and protectionist measures. And I expect this is going to continue until such time as the U.S. gets what it wants out of the economic system, either through concessions from other nations, or some other effect that he is going for. Now onto Brexit, with big news as two members of the UK government front bench resigning over Brexit negotiations. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about what a hard and soft Brexit are. Then I'm going to move on, talk about these two people leaving government, what that means for the UK political system, and what effects are going to be likely on the Brexit situation. And then finally talk about what the effects of a hard Brexit would actually look like and how it could end up being a blessing in disguise, but it would be very, very painful in the short term. A hard Brexit is what many of the Leave supporters 
would like to see. And it would see the UK leave the single market and customs union. So it's kind of the economic side of things. Um, and it also mean that the UK would have control of its borders again, which is the immigration issue, the idea that EU nationals can flow in and out of the country freely, relatively. Uh, it would also cut money being spent in Brussels to support the EU and would mean the country would have to negotiate its own trade deals again. Instead of the EU taking care of all trade deals, uh, the UK would set its own uh, bilateral trade deals between it and other countries. A single market is kind of the height of integration between economies, whereas a customs union is kind of a step down. It includes the EU states and others like Turkey, does not require the free movement of people, being directly subject to the European Court of Justice, um, so the laws of the EU would not override uh, UK laws, uh, or paying into the EU budget. But it also means you would face more tariffs and protections from the rest of the EU and be harder to trade and make money there. And so a hard Brexit would be leaving all this behind, starting from scratch to negotiate trade deals, and in the short term would have a lot of negative consequences, which we'll detail later in this piece. A soft Brexit is favoured by those who don't want the country to leave the EU, or at the very least want to retain some links. Um, this could be some leavers who want to leave but don't want to leave completely, and others who want to remain and accept the fact that there is going to be Brexit, but they want to reduce the pain effectively. Uh, the UK would have to give up its seat in the European Council, but there'll probably be some kind of free movement of goods and services and possibly people. And that's kind of the big sticking point, as the UK quite likes the movement of goods and services to the EU, as it can make a lot of money, but it has a serious problem with the free movement of people, as this immigration issue in, the, in Brexit was quite important. The current plan from Prime Minister Theresa May is a soft Brexit. It's to avoid a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, but there would be some immigration control returned to the UK. However, there would be some kind of mobility framework uh, introduced in its place that would probably give uh, preferential rights to EU citizens. This may be seen by some Leave proponents as a stealth continuation of the free movement of people principle that the EU supports and that the Brexit is disdain. And so there'll be potentially considerable political pushback if that's what it's end up going to be. And so if they don't announce before the agreement what the exact situation is, you may see Leave voters in the government voting against it because they don't know what it's going to be and they make the, the worst possible assumption of how it might turn out. This is the main crux of the issue mainly between UK, which wants to have access to the common market, and Europe wants to be able to trade and uh, make a lot of money out of the EU. But at the same time, it doesn't want to have the free flow of immigrants uh, and EU nationals potentially coming into their, crossing into their borders. However, the EU is very strongly supportive of the free movement of peoples, and so this is the impasse that we're at, where they both would like to trade. However, the sticking point of the free movement of people is preventing them coming to an, an easy resolution to this particular problem. And then it becomes a matter of negotiations and trade-offs. And there are a lot of a lot of issues to trade off in terms of health, in terms of which goods will be exempted from tariffs or will have different tariffs put them, maybe slightly less. And so when you get into the nitty-gritty of it, it's a bureaucratic nightmare to try and deal with the exact details and what's taking a long time. Now, there's a deadline to this. In less than nine months, Britain must leave the EU. Uh, Friday, the 29th of March, 2019. However, there's been an agreement of a transition period from this date until the 31st of December 2020. And so it's actually basically two years until Britain really has to leave. And so there's quite a bit of time to prepare the country. Uh, and this transition period would be the time when Britain would be technically allowed, although it's been doing it anyway, to engage in free trade negotiations with other countries and get prepared for the transition if it has to transition. However, the period of time that we have of less than nine months, that's a time period to finish the negotiations effectively. 
at least that's how it's been purported to be how it's going to work, and that in these nine months, they need to get some kind of deal together. If they can't get the deal together in those nine months, then it'll likely be a hard Brexit. Then Britain will have to work very hard to try and get its free trade set up. They'll be pushing to keep the transition period open so that they can continue to trade and with the EU and give them time to prepare. The EU may decide to, if they want to, throw out the transitionary period and make it troublesome for the for the UK or use that as a negotiation tactic if they feel like they can get the UK to capitulate on a particular issue, they may use that as a bargaining chip. However, this less than nine month period has been complicated and probably set back by the recent resigning of two members of government, which I talked about earlier. And so the first of the two to resign was David Davis, who is the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, also known as the Brexit Secretary. It's the more basic way of saying it. And the other was Boris Johnson, who was the foreign secretary, like the foreign minister in Australia, or the secretary of state in America. And they both have resigned effectively over the Brexit deal, despite several days earlier agreeing uh, or going to a meeting with their party colleagues and kind of agreeing to the Brexit deal. It appears that they didn't really appreciate that particular plan that was put in place, and they have resigned. Some news outlets, particularly in reference to Boris Johnson, have been saying this is a power play and that he doesn't want to be associated with Brexit and that he wants to take himself out of the front bench to prepare himself for potentially trying to make a bid for prime ministership. But as far as I understand it, he doesn't have that much support yet. And things would have to continue to deteriorate quite a bit for Theresa May to be supplanted by him. However, Davis and Johnson were brought into the government in part to associate them with a Brexit issue and to effectively discredit them as being Leave supporters. If they went along with the government's plan, they would then be seen as potentially, in this case, doing a soft Brexit, which might upset their constituents. But also it reduced their ability to critique it because being your foreign secretary, being part of the government means you're implicitly approving the government's party platform. And you can't really continue part of government if you're not willing to support the party's platform. At the very least, you need to step down from a front bench position, take a back bench position. And that's effectively been able to reduce their capacity to disagree with how the Brexit deal was going to go. Their resignation now means that they are now free to do so. Now, with these two leaving the front bench, it allows them and the supporters to criticize the soft Brexit plan of Theresa May. And if they don't like what's put on the table, they can vote against it. And this increases the likelihood that a soft Brexit will not occur and increases the chance that we'll get closer and closer to the deadline and eventually nothing will happen. It will force them to default back to the hard Brexit approach and things will get very, very messy very, very quickly. And so to explain that mess, I'm going to give a, a bit of a rundown on what a hard Brexit would look like for the UK and try to provide an alternative perspective of how this actually might be a good thing. Well, maybe not a good thing, but uh, a blessing in disguise and perhaps the long term. In the short term, it'll be extremely painful for the UK. So I'm going to provide a few examples. And the first one's going to be supply chains. So supply chains are simply, if you look at your phone, it's got lots of little components that are part of it. One country will make the case, another country might build the software, another country might build the hardware in terms of the microchips, another might be supplying the glass for it, and then finally it's sent to another country to be sold. And so multiple countries, all who are specialized in their particular thing, put together their efforts and then they create a, a relatively cheaper good than if any of them tried to do it themselves. Well, any supply chain that runs from the UK to the EU or vice versa would be in serious trouble as prices on goods and services within the supply chain would suddenly spike. And so when beforehand it might be quite economical for the UK to, to build something and then ship it to the EU or vice versa, 
or the UK might have several production plants in the EU where they're building certain things and they get sent to the UK, which they finish off and then they sell. That would suddenly be interrupted. And all those supply chains were predicated on keeping the price low through different specializations in different areas where they're efficient in different things in different countries would suddenly see maybe a 20 or 25% tariff spike. And those profit margins that might have been quite small but made sense in a supply chain might suddenly be wiped out. Based on 2016 numbers, 43% of the UK's exports are to other EU members and 54% of their imports are from other EU members. So they're quite ingrained in the EU. It would mean effectively half of their trade in direct terms would be impacted with potential propagating effects from other secondary effects from this sudden spiking of tariffs. Total trade with the EU is on average 12 to 15% of the British economy. If there was a sudden disruption to this and they didn't have enough time to adjust and prepare, they could see a good portion of that part of the economy basically wiped out in the initial time after Brexit. It would eventually recover as they found other sources and it might not recover as well, it might not be as efficient, uh, they might have to go further abroad and be more expensive. But this would mean that after a hard Brexit, there would be probably a guaranteed recession in Britain. It would be very, very messy and very, very hard for people there in the immediate aftermath of a hard Brexit. This is why the UK, as we have discussed earlier, uh, has reached out to the US and others to establish trade deals uh, to replace these potential losses and basically mitigate the amount of damage that's going to occur. As an aside, within the last 24 hours, Tr President Trump stated that Theresa May's softer Brexit approach may kill this US-UK free trade deal as the soft Brexit would effectively emulate the EU's policies, which would basically make them still part of the EU in terms of, from the US perspectives, trade negotiations, because the UK would have to follow the EU processes and policies, and thus they would be subservient to the EU in terms of their international trade. How the biggest problem would probably be finance, due to the high proportion of services in the UK to EU trade balance. Finance generally likes to work in a low financially regulatory area that's stable and has a large market to deal with. So places like London, New York, Paris. However, the uncertainty of a hard Brexit and this restriction of the, the market from the EU in total to just the UK may see a lot of them move elsewhere. And so you might have financial companies taking their business from London to the EU, but also the US. In particular, considering the lingering effects of the Eurozone crisis, New York would probably be the beneficiary of this kind of movement because there's a nice large labor market there for the companies to, to hire financial workers and they would be investing in a system that is far healthier than the European system. Now the total impact of all these examples upon the UK's economy would be quite terrible and it would almost guarantee a recession for several years in the country. However, I've said earlier that there may be a blessing in disguise in this and I'm going to try and support that position and provide an alternate viewpoint of how this could turn out. As I've discussed in earlier podcasts, the European Union and the Eurozone is still in crisis and it fundamentally has a difficulty in the future because many of the countries have inverted population pyramids. And what I mean by that is, if you look at it, there are a lot of old people and not very many young people. And generally you need young people to have a consumption-led economy because you need, you have lots of people, they buy things, the economy keeps moving. If you don't have lots of people like that, you instead have to use an investment because there's lots of people who are older and have lots of money to invest, and an export-led economy. Because instead of you having the consumption in your own country, you use the consumption in another country, and you sell to them and make money off them. And you can see these problems for yourself. If you look at population pyramid Germany, or Italy, or Spain, you can see it doesn't really look like a pyramid as you would expect. It's somewhat inverted in that there's 
very few young people and there's quite a few old people, which is the opposite if you want to look at the, the classic image would be India, which is a lot of young people, fewer middle-aged people, and very few old people. And so young people in their 20s to say 40s provide consumption-led growth. They buy lots of things, they finance that with borrowing, the older people provide them finance to do that, and that keeps the economy turning over. If you don't have those people, you need to engage in investment and export-driven growth. And so you've lots of money, older people with lots of money, they've saved up over their lifetimes, they invested elsewhere and they get returns that come back to them, which helps the economy. And you export your goods elsewhere and use the consumption in other countries to help make up for the lack of consumption in your own country. That's what the European Union has relied upon in recent years, particularly in Germany. And so it exports its cars all over the world, particularly to the US, and that has kept their economy booming. And so this export-led growth model is occurring at the same time as Trump's war on trade is occurring. And so if this export model dries up, the economies won't have anything to replace it with as they won't have the consumption-led growth to replace this export-led growth in the past, which means there is a future limit on the prosperity of Europe if it doesn't start having more children. And this is part of what uh, Chancellor Merkel said with immigrants coming to the country was that, great, we need to fill in the bottom of our populations and they can work and they'll pay taxes and they'll look after all the old people who have uh, welfare costs associated with being elderly and being looked after and health costs. But the immigration crisis in Europe has seen a pushback. Immigrants are less welcome and this means it's going to be hard to provide that replacement population. And if you can't import someone, import a 25-year-old, you have to make your own. And so that takes 25 years to make a 25-year-old. This means that in over the next 20 years, it's probably going to get worse and worse for Germany as the trade war escalates. And so they can't export as much, so they're getting less money there, and they can't replace it with local consumption. The best they can hope for is that other countries like France or perhaps Turkey will have population booms and try and export to them instead. But this creates a real big problem because Germany's booming economy has been able to help finance and support the EU and keep it stable and solvent to a degree after the euro crisis and the heavy debts that even Italy still has, a major, major country that has significant debt that is a huge burden. And thus, there's a real risk that this enterprise that's been built up will see it come crashing down. And if it does, it will be effectively the same thing as a hard Brexit, but the whole of Europe. And so if Britain gets out now with a hard Brexit, it will be very, very painful. But there is a silver lining because if the Europeans continue to degrade in terms of their economic performance over time, and if their European Union collapses under the weight of the debt that has been foisted upon the governments through the bailouts, particularly countries like Spain and Italy, and then that has then processed back up to France and Germany, it may mean that in the long run, the UK is ahead because it's had time ahead of time of this entire system collapsing to set up its own bilateral trade agreements. And it's been able to reconstitute itself rather than trying to do that bilateral trade deal at the same time all the other countries in the EU are suffering from the same kind of hard Brexit effects of collapsing economies. That doesn't mean the European Union will collapse, but it is under extreme pressure, particularly the debt from the euro crisis, as well as the fact that NATO looks more and more precarious. And if the US leaves, as we discussed earlier, and these countries have the security dilemma where the US isn't there to protect them from each other, each other anymore, they become more and more nationalistic and more and more likely to slowly break down the system if the trade war doesn't already destroy their economies through a lack of export opportunities. So there's the alternate take and the silver lining potentially of a hard Brexit for the UK. It'll still be extremely painful, uh, but it does appear to be more likely to be occurring 
with the fact that these two figures in the government have left it and are more likely to be freely critiquing it and their supporters will be freely feeling to vote against any deal that Theresa May comes up that isn't to their liking and is more and more hard Brexit rather than soft Brexit. That's it for this week's podcast. You can contact us at envoyuwa at gmail.com with any questions, requests, or feedback you may have. I've been your host, Nathan Shaw, and we'll be bringing you new international relations insights very soon.